0: Welcome back to Sarah and Tech. I'm Sarah and today we're going to be talking with Dan Yeah, Yell- Oh gosh.
1: <laughs> I know it's a tricky one.
0: <laughs> Daniele Moro. Did I say that right this time? Yes. Yes Sorry that's right. Oh,
1: that. No that's good. <laughs> it's an Italian version of the typical kind of Daniel name I guess.
0: Is your family super Italian or? Yeah
1: yeah uh, we're all Italian. I grew up in Italy. Oh and, wow. Uh, yeah I came over when I was seven years old so it's I mean I'm mostly American now right but I still definitely hold on to that Italian heritage
0: do you ever go back and visit family or oh yeah
1: no I mean especially when I was younger and you know high school I'd visit back all the time but now not so much after college and of course with the pandemic it's been hard to visit but uh, I still like to keep in touch
0: is everyone over there safe after the pandemic I know they kind of had a lot going on especially at the beginning
1: yeah for sure it got kind of um kind of bad there for a while but my family's all safe everything's good and I think the situation's getting better so uh, hopefully the you know the pandemic will go away soon and we can get back to normal.
0: Uh, I know business travel is about to resume probably within the next couple weeks at least that's what management keeps telling me so and I heard that maybe in the future you're going to be moving to San Francisco in the not too distant future?
1: Oh yeah in the next couple months I'll be moving to San Francisco uh super (laughs) excited about that. It'll be a very different lifestyle, but I'm looking forward to it. Yes,
0: there's. I hear the culture is very, very different. But that's not why we're here today. We're here to talk about you. Uh, so you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you're currently doing maybe, and about your current employer?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently a software engineer at Google, and I do research in artificial intelligence, uh, mostly in computer vision. And my target is more for a kind of very... Uh, low energy pa- uh, hardware, and how do we put, make machine learning models more efficient, uh, more quantized, so smaller, and uh, we can put them in more places that can help you in, in your daily life.
0: Are you working with quantum at all?
1: No, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of them actually.
0: Uh, quantum is like quantum computing and things like that. They oh, also have I see. quantum computing hardware. Um, I was just wondering. Yeah, there's, uh, I guess. You said the quant, because like to minimize and like reduce energy usage. And I was like, is that somehow related to quantum? But
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I guess there's a similarity in words there. Um, for what I'm doing, it's not really about quantum computing. So quantization of models is how do we uh, discretize models? So instead of, say, for example, using floating point numbers, how can we make them use like uh, int-8 numbers or less? So how do we make... The um, instead of the machine learning models using kind of a typical kind of floating point value of you know floating point activations, we have to discretize them so they're discrete steps, right? And if we can make them these discrete steps, then uh, we can increase their hardware efficiency. Yeah,
0: that's cool. That makes sense. And then you'll need less bits, so less binary behind the scenes and all that fun stuff.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And uh, we have a, a public, uh, an open open source uh, library called QKeras which uh, we've been developing on our team, and we use that all the time for our projects.
0: I think I've actually like imported that into a notebook before and played around <laughs> nice. with it, so that's very cool that you're working on that. That's awesome. Are, are you like super excited? Is this what you've always wanted to do?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to do AI research, and it's always been kind of a question for me of like, where's the best place to do AI research? Um, so I've, I've done it in academia, kind of an uh, undergraduate doing research, uh, but I've, this is kind of the first time where I've done you know, full-time work in industry uh, research. So it's, there's lots of differences, lots of pros, and, and uh, a few cons, I think. There's always some differences, but for the most part, I've really enjoyed it. Um, the resources that we have at Google are incredible. Uh, and it really allows us to, you know, the scale of the machine learning models we develop can be, you know, helpful for millions, if not billions of people, right? I'm, I'm not there yet, but one day.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is your first year being a true software developer at Google. So you previously were an intern there. Yeah. So where did that jump come from? Like seven years old, you were in Italy, you came to the United States, and now you're a software developer for Google. Like how did that happen? Like there's a big chunk of time. When did you discover your passion for technology?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, it's kind of like the cliche, you know, little kid who likes to play with Legos. I was uh, in that in that mindset. I like to, you know, uh, take things apart, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I remember when I was young, my uh, parents got me the Lego Mindstorm. And that was kind of a revolution for me because I went from playing around with bricks where it's kind of more, I guess, mechanical engineering in a way, civil engineering. I don't know, to the Lego Mindstorm is more robotics. Mm -hmm. Right. And more programming. And I found that I got tired of putting the bricks together, and I just wanted to program on the Lego Mindstorm. So I kind of started to think, oh, maybe I do like this kind of programming kind of stuff. Um, and then from there, I uh, I kind of went along, did a lot of robotics stuff. I did first robotics. Um, I did a lot of engineering classes when I was young. And um, I did a research experience at, at Boise State University, where I programmed a uh, Arduino weather stations to collect, uh, let's say, like snow depth data, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it went from there. I think eventually got to the point where the latest and greatest stuff that I was seeing always revolved around AI. And it seemed like an interesting concept of like, you know, I'm kind of even tired of programming, you know, you know, robots to do something. What if I made uh, some AI that learned how to do things for me? That seems like less work, right? That seems fun, more fun. <laughs> So that's, that's where I went. Um, my first experience really getting into AI was when I did, uh, in my freshman summer, I went to Carnegie Mellon University for a robotics uh, re- re- internship. So it was called RIS. And there I worked on these uh, soft robotic manipulators, uh, basically in, in the research of soft robotics. How can we make robots that are soft and inherently safe? And then how can we make uh, AI and machine learning able to control these soft robots which physically are very different from a traditional kind of rigid robot. So there, I learned all about you know neural networks, machine learning. I you know kind of like did a f- crash course in that stuff and made a little machine learning model that could control this soft robotic hand.
0: So when you say soft, um, because I know everyone has seen like the Boston Dynamic videos of these humanoid robots, but those are inherently hard because their shells are metal. Yeah. So when you say soft, what? what exactly makes it a soft robot. Yeah, like
1: soft material, like foam, for example. Okay. So
0: like yeah. you could go up and hug it and cuddle yeah. with it.
1: Yeah, like uh, Big Hero Six, you know, that, oh, wow. that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: So it's not just in a dizzy Disney, Disney Pixar movie. It's
1: Oh real. no. No, it's real. It's real. I mean, I don't think I think this field is still relatively new compared mm-hmm. to, you know, like say Boston Dynamics. But it's quickly getting up there. Um and the what I was working on, you can imagine like um the like a foam hand and then you apply strings to each of the, the fingers, and those act kind of like tendons. So then when you pull the strings, the, the hand moves around, right? So so now let's, the question is, where do you put these strings mm-hmm. to make all the movements necessary? Uh, how many motors do you need? And, and also, how do you control the strings to manipulate, let's say, delicate objects? Mm-hmm. right? And a machine learning model can do this inverse kinematics problem uh, relatively well.
0: I know someone else that actually was also in robotics for hands. It's actually how Siraj Raval got his uh, start into oh, AI. was ew, also wow. kind of the same path with hand robotics. And he had a startup, an AI startup, I think, or a robotics startup where he was actually learning how to manipulate a robot. And that's kind of what led down his path for AI too. So that's kind of – that's a u- unusual entry point, I think, but very relevant. And so Carnegie Mellon, then you came back to Boise State and –
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, then I continued uh, doing classwork and then undergraduate research. Uh, I got involved with uh, Dr. Casey Kennington uh, because I was interested in natural language processing. Right, the robot stuff was cool, but I wanted the robots to talk back, right? Like to, <laughs> to have a conversation with them. So that's uh, when I got really interested in natural language processing, and I still am. Um, so there, we you know we asked a lot of the questions of like uh, one of my first research projects. There was like, okay, how, what is the meaning of a hand gesture? So it kind of relates to the hand stuff, um, but we have all this data. We had all this data from this robotic hand research. So it's like, can we um, use, you know, what it's called like multimodal machine learning to uh, better understand the meaning of hand gestures, not just the way they look, but also the way that they, f- they feel, right? So if you imagine if you make a fist, right, um, the meaning of that fist ha- is is inherently connected to how it feels to make a fist, right? Or like a peace sign, or or a point, or anything else, right? Mm-hmm. But current research doesn't really look at that too much. They only look at like pictures of hands, let's say. So you know, hands maybe are not the most useful thing immediately. They are very useful applications, of course, like uh, you know, sign language, that kind of stuff. But the bigger picture is more of like how can we integrate uh, kind of embodied semantics into robotics research and also you know other sort of like NLP stuff. Yeah.
0: And so that robotics research and that NLP led obviously to where you are now.
1: Yeah, I, I think so it was interesting because I, I wanted to get a taste of different ways that you can work on AI research. So I started kind of in academia, academia with uh, Carnegie Mellon. Then I wanted to try the startup life. So I did a Kleiner Perkins engineering Ven- fellowship at uh, Area One Security. And there I worked on like phishing email, uh, machine learning, like how do we detect if an email is safe. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I did the internship at uh, Google, where I worked on um, this kind of like quantization, machine learning stuff, mostly in like computer vision. Um, So, you know, I had all these three options in front of me, and I was like, okay, what do I, where do I want to go next? Right. And ultimately, I just loved, I mean, all three are amazing, right? Mm, Yes. And I could probably,
0: (laughs) very impressive. Like, You didn't even finish your bachelor's and you have three very big names
1: on (laughs) your resume yeah yeah but I mean what was most important to me is the kind of the lifestyle associated with each the kind of feeling that each one has like Mm -hmm. I would say you know academia is is very much about the science of things like you don't necessarily care if what you're inventing makes money or not and that freedom is is incredible feeling right you can think of any idea
0: but you're still in the paradigm of publish or die getting grants I mean I've I've been in that academia land and I, I have quite a few publications, but I mean, that you can't just go like at a 90 degree and go off into an area. You have to make sure that there's funding. And if you want to do the professorship route, especially if you want to be a research professor, not required to teach classes, you have to publish and you have to publish substantially. And there's all these rules in order to Keep your professorship.
1: Yeah, and a lot of politics and there's a lot of stuff to think about beyond science. That's <laughs> I completely agree and that's also something I learned. But I, I still feel in some ways you you have, let's say, a different amount of freedom mm-hmm. compared to, say, industry or whatever, right? Um, yeah, and, and also the startup life was very different as well, right? That one is like, you need to make money pretty fast. Otherwise, you know, you can't really sustain that, uh, you know, that startup. Um,
0: and usually startups, you have to work 80 plus hours a week. Yeah, if you're going to be a successful startup, I mean, not that being a professor, you don't work well over 40 a week, but startup is like you sleep and you start up. And that is like, that is it. Usually, as far as my understanding is that, does that match your experience? Or Yeah,
1: I would agree. I mean, every startup is different. The culture is always different. Um, my start, my internship at Area 1, um, I mean, it, it wasn't probably that intense, but it was definitely, you know... Uh, you know, you have to drive the pro- the, the progress forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there is a lot of work that, that needs to be done. Um, but at, at the same time, the impact that you have on an individual level mm-hmm. is so much greater because you're not a cog in a machine necessarily. I mean, not that you always are in a big industry, but in a startup, you know, as a percentage of the total productivity of that company, you have a pretty big slice, yeah. right? Uh, and so seeing that impact directly, um, you know, from, you know, the initial idea to the actual product is, is also really incredible. Um, Yeah. And then finally we get to the industry research and there, um, you know, there's different pros and cons. Maybe you are in a bigger company, right? So you are a little bit of a cog in a machine, but it also depends on the team and whatnot. Uh, But the resources you have in industry, I think that's probably one of the most, you know, uh, impactful things. Because at Google, we have, you know, thousands of TPUs that we can just spin up, mm-hmm. you know, use for training, right? Um, and the data sets, the, the teams that we have access to, uh, it's it's truly incredible. Um, so I, I love... I mean, like, the yeah.
0: subject matter experts, like, you could just go talk to someone that, like, yeah. build TensorFlow if you had a question why exactly. it works this way. It's just...
1: Yes, I, I regularly talk to people who are, like are foundational <laughs> to the you know, machine learning uh, frameworks that we have now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very humbling at the same time. It's, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 after experiencing all these different worlds, obviously I think I would have been happy choosing any of them. In the end, I went with Google because I really liked the project that I was on. I really liked the people. And uh, I thought the uh, learning opportunity was just incredible at Google. So yeah, who knows what life awaits, but that's that's how I got uh, to where I am now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, a friend I know described uh, SF in that um, the um, each city, I've been going to a lot of West Coast cities lately, and each city has its own set of values. So um, in SF's case, your value um, for a community or for the society is directly related to how much impact, how much good you can do. Uh, Boise is kind of more family centric, and so Boise relates um, value in the society to having a family and being like a member of a family and building up a family. So it's, I mean, obviously over super simplified over generalization, but that's kind of just what I've noticed, and I've been in like sampling a lot of West Coast cities lately. <laughs> but I'm sure when you go to SF, you will definitely experience a very unique culture in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have seen some of that, like, over-optimism. Uh, I mean, that's, I think, kind of a, cl- a classic theme in Silicon <laughs> Valley of, like, you know, young people who say, hey, yeah, we're going to change the world, right? But then is is the world really changed for the good? There's some bad as well, maybe, right? How do you handle that? Um, so I think it's important to be realistic. Uh and, I mean, yeah, I, I think that generalization, you know, of, like, Boise versus the Silicon Valley, I think it, it does kind of hold, but there's also so much flexibility, right? Like, especially now, post-pandemic, work remote work is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, I feel like uh, it opens so many doors to, to live anywhere and be anywhere, and hopefully that'll continue in the future.
0: Yeah, it has. There's a lot of remote opportunities. Yeah. Anyway, so... One question that I was wondering about is, how do you stay inspired? Because you have a lot of things on your plate and you're working really hard. What gets you up in the morning?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, the way I look at, I guess, life is, is co- sort of through an optimization standpoint, right? It's like I have, I have certain things that I want to try to optimize for my own happiness, let's say. Um, so for me, I think helping other people is, is a big one, but how, how do you do that, right? There's different ways. One is impact. so I want to try to help as many people as possible. Let's you know, do it like in the number count, right? Uh, but at the same time, it's also kind of like how you help them. And I see that mainly through innovation, right? I want to come up with new ideas that can help people in radically new ways, right? So, so I want to try to optimize for those things. And that's how, kind of how I got into AI research as well. So when I wake up in the morning, I try to, you know, work towards those objectives, but that's big picture. I don't think about it day to day. Um, And I don't know, I think in addition to that, there's also an aspect of like, I have a a deep need to be creative. So I feel like by the end of the day, I want to do something that unlocks some creativity in me. And it's kind of like some fulfillment that, you know, something I need to fulfill. Um, So, yeah, I guess those are my main principles.
0: Do you think data science is creative? Do you see yourself as a data artist?
1: Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, data is so much of an art in in many different ways. Um, And I think it's interesting to combine the science with the art, right? Because it's so important to to do things in a scientific way, in my eyes, because the truth is something that's so slippery Mm -hmm. uh, and hard to define that you need the scientific method, right? But at the same time, it comes to points where... You know, to solve a problem, you need to think in a completely different way. And that's actually, you know, I, I've i uh, started working at Google uh, about a year ago. I actually just got to my one-year work anniversary, <laughs> which is Yay! yeah, it's strange to think about. But, you know, during especially my first year, I came in with such a fresh mindset that I was able to look at things that, you know, we were doing in the team and saying, oh, hey, wait, what if we do this? What if we think about this in another way? Right. And that creativity has made life so much more interesting and... Uh, I think it's also helped, you know, helped my workplace where we think more about than, you know, okay, what needs to be done right now? Let's think about what can be completely changed, right? Maybe a more risky approach.
0: Well, that is a good paradigm shift, though, is less about, like, how do we optimize to get from point A to point B, but, like, how do we change the way we get from point A to point B? Yeah. So, I mean, otherwise we would never have things like cars being invented. We'd still be walking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Do you have anything that keeps you up at night that you're worrying about that's on the forefront?
1: I mean, I think it's been on a lot of people's mind, but um, I guess just the concept of the truth. (laughs) Like, how do we have people get to the same truth? Mm -hmm. Right. I I mean, this this is something that I think applies to everything you know, in anything from politics to, to data science, right? And so I've been thinking a lot more about, like, how do I apply the scientific method and, you know, even like Bayesian thinking to my life day to day?
0: Bayesian or frequentist?
1: I, I still am learning more about that. But I guess the, the core principle that I like to think of is, like, how do I update uh, the probability of what is true and, um, based on new experiences that I have. So I have maybe some priors of like what I exist uh, I think already mm-hmm. and then they update it as I gain new experience. So, so I don't you know if that's are, quite That is Beijing. that is yeah, I guess that's not quite frequentist, right?
0: <laughs> the thing that bothers me at least as far as the truth goes is there are published papers out there that we use as like tent posts. Yeah. But when we go to reproduce the same experiments, we don't get the same results. They're not reproducible. Yeah. But they have a significant p-value. And so on and so forth. And you, I mean, I take published papers, especially from certain journals, as being like, that is the truth. And p-value hacking and a lot of things in those space obstificate it. So that way we don't know entirely what's going on. But I mean, things just as sticky as politics and and all of that. Um, Sometimes it's just whatever your angle is looking at the same thing.
1: Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's also a public perception problem in mm-hmm. science is that we need to get reproducibility right, you know, and especially in AI, especially in data science, because it's becoming such a powerful tool that we need the public to understand, hey, you know, there's like solid science going on here. People are not just kind of making things up as they go, right? Um, and yeah, it, it's a problem. And I think I, I'm, I'm hoping to address it as I go, right? Um, it can start small, you know, just like, my day-to-day work, uh, and hopefully it'll keep growing. I think there's have been movements in the greater academic community to, you know, for example, include code more, right? That's become more important, like open source code and reproducing all experiments. Um, The data
0: actually providing the experimental data, I think is key in a lot of things and isn't being done or is being done very rarely. Yeah. And obviously it's the scientists, right? And whoever else they worked with who gave them grant money to withhold the data but for reproducibility purposes um, it is important.
1: Yeah I agree.
0: So do you have anything else you want to say regarding like the truth or your opinion about it?
1: Yeah I mean it's it's still something that I'm working through I'm figuring out. Um, I think it's it's hard to say it's hard to give an exact way to determine what is the truth. And I think we kind of have to maybe think about it in a more probabilistic way Mm -hmm. many times, but uh, something that's been on top of my mind for sure lately. And hopefully we'll figure it out.
0: Do you remember the analogy of three blind men all petting an elephant and the way that they describe the elephant is very different. One's petting the head and describes the trunk. Another one, you know, is petting the side and describes it as a wall and, and another one's petting the leg and describes it as like an actual tree trunk. Mm-hmm. And so all of them technically did describe an elephant. It's just that their perception of the truth is all very different. Yeah. And so try to I try to remember that when dealing with people who don't agree, I don't agree with because it happens and I think my viewpoint is the truth, but it's my truth. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there's a lot of people that you know yeah. Just don't agree with sometimes
1: and I mean I think part of it is kind of like the best way to persuade someone to think the same way you are thinking in my eyes is to first understand completely understand how they think what they think and where they came to that conclusion from um, only then can you start to persuade people to to follow maybe something that you believe in right mm-hmm. and that's how I think we should do true discourse and get to the you know maybe t- eventually we can describe the whole elephant <laughs> <laughs> if everyone can do that right everyone can understand everyone else's point of view
0: there are just so many people that are so charged right now with emotion that they yeah. won't even get to the discourse part and yeah. so that's that's bad and because everyone's becoming polarized so that's true but
1: in in my experience I think emotion is part of discourse like I, I think many times in science we try to separate emotion and let's say logic right but there's there's almost an emotional reasoning that you can do to to help people understand your point of view as well and it's very tricky to do. Um, I still <laughs> can't get it completely right. But I think the more people that I talk to, especially that have a different perspective, I can use emotion to, to help create that connection.
0: Um, so what I was going to say is that during my master's degree, mm-hmm. I remember a frequentist statistician and a Bayesian statistician literally screaming at each other during seminar. Mm. And these are adult professors. They were definitely emotionally charged. <laughs> they both definitely weren't going to change from their frequentist or their Bayesian viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of just reminded me of when you were talking. About yeah, that.
1: but <laughs> that's true. Yeah, there's definitely stuff we can improve. Even the scientists, you know, <laughs> we can improve within <laughs> our own uh, fields, right? Yeah.
0: So who do you look up to? What's do you look up to anyone? Or have oh, you yeah. just been like... Uh, blazing a trail
1: yeah I mean I I I caution myself uh, in idolizing specific people Mm -hmm. Uh, I mostly try to focus on traits of people that I really you know really like Um, I don't know for example like Elon Musk (laughs) he's a very polarizing (laughs) figure certain things I'm very like you know impressed and I want to do that like his his like pure ambition like and the scale of how he thinks I, I tr- always try to remind myself, like, hey, think on the scale of Elon Musk. Like, if you can do that, then you can really start to make change. Um, you know, and there's also less good things about Elon Musk. But eh, you can you can take that into consideration as well.
0: I mean, his work, he is very well known for his work ethic, like yeah. putting a cot on the floor of an office and eating hot dogs and oranges and then just working nonstop. And when he can't work anymore, just falling asleep and eating more hot dogs and oranges. <laughs> yeah,
1: I can't do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, that, that is definitely admirable. I don't think I could do that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but tr- I'm mean,
1: a few people could probably, right? Like <laughs> so
0: very driven. He's like, I'm going that way. I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. Just,
1: yeah. I mean, th- that, that part is good, right? I just, uh, maybe the work ethic, you know, don't, don't follow that too strictly, I guess. <laughs>
0: I hear he expects that from his uh, employees as well.
1: So oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's that's a whole workplace culture <laughs> thing.
0: <laughs> so what is your definition of success? Have you hit it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to put an end goal because what happens if I reach it, then that's kind of boring, I guess, right? So for me, it's kind of like the optimization of those you know criteria I was talking about before, like kind of the impact and innovation. Uh, across as big a scale as I can right so I can always try to optimize that more and more Um, and yeah I I, I think that's something I'm always going to work towards for my whole life so that's success
0: it's it's a journey it's not a destination right
1: yeah I would I would consider that yeah
0: so what is the biggest thing you want to accomplish within the next five years on the line of success and idolizing yeah. Elon Musk?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> be careful with that. But yeah, um, let's see. So the next five years, uh, so obviously I'm still kind of early in my career. I uh, just started working at Google. So I, uh, my biggest goal right now is learning, right? I think to, to really make a change in the world, first I have to really truly understand it. So that, you know, that means that every day at work, I try to learn as much as possible and I'm in a great position to do so, right? Mm. Um, beyond that, I think starting to keep working on the, the kinds of projects that I do see have the greatest potential for that impact and innovation. And what I'm working on now, I definitely think has has potential. Um, Are
0: you allowed to talk about it?
1: I probably can't go in, in much detail, um, but I'll, I'll say that, you know, it, Let's see. What can I say? Um,
0: it's okay if you can, can't say anything at all. That's, yeah, I'll, I'll mean, leave it at that yeah, I mean, I
1: get NDAs. I'll leave it at that. I think I'll just say being at Google puts me in a unique position to have the scale that I want mm-hmm. and the resources that can enable that innovation as well.
0: So, what's one of the biggest roadblocks towards innovation towards the mm-hmm. future of AI everywhere and soft robots?
1: Yeah, I think, um, so I, I, I've uh, had conversations before with, uh, you know, other engineers where we talk about like this um, uh, sigmoid curve, right? Like in terms, if you try to plot innovation, uh, whenever a new technique is developed, like let's say like convolutions and deep learning or maybe transformer models, there's this burst of innovation and so many new things get developed. So that's kind of the upway, upwards part of the sigmoid mm-hmm. curve. And then after point, we kind of get to the, edge of what we can accomplish with a certain idea or technique. Like there's only so much we can keep refining it to have this innovation. Right. And so it kind of flattens out after a bit. So I feel like in in some ways we are at that point, especially with deep learning, um, obviously, you know, with the transformer model coming out now, it's another huge kind of upward stick.
0: But didn't that come out about a year ago?
1: Yeah, that's true. And we are getting kind of maybe near the, the plateau of that. Um, so, So when you say like roadblocks in innovation, at least on a personal level, I want to try to help start the next kind of start in the sigmoid, right? Mm And uh, I mean, that's obviously extremely difficult and requires a lot of creativity. Um, But I think that's the most important thing. Like if if we want to really be innovative, Mm -hmm. we have to keep thinking of new ideas. We can't just keep refining what we have before.
0: I mean, I know like previously... AI and machine learning papers were coming out really frequently, Mm -hmm. especially when things started becoming open source with TensorFlow and everyone was coming up with all these new neural nets. And then Transformers came out about a year ago and it's kind of been quiet during the pandemic other than like FFTs being applied to models um, in a new way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it also depends on like the specific field. Like, I don't know if you watched Google I.O. recently, but they unveiled, uh, I think they're calling them Lambda Nets. Um, and there is a lot of, I mean, it still relies on the transformer kind of uh, n- basis, from as far as I understand. But the their the innovation there has been pretty impressive, from what I've seen. Um, I think a lot of it now is that we can't just apply transformers to unsupervised data and expect them to be perfect, because they're going to start making things up. Right? It's I guess it goes back to the truth, like what is truth, right? How do we make these models? ground to some sort of knowledge graph or some sort of truth right and I think a lot of people are working on that right now and we're getting closer and closer to having some really impressive intelligent let's say um, you know AI that we could really converse with Mm
0: -hmm. and I mean I have a google dot at home we regularly talk to it but she gets a lot of stuff wrong
1: oh yeah I there's (laughs) a lot of room for improvement there (laughs) at least from my experience
0: but that sounds very promising uh, where do you see all this technology going towards the Lambda Nets and everything? Mm-hmm. You see it being better at talking, being better at NLP, being better at computer vision.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the, the core problem at the heart of AI is how do we unlock reasoning, right? Um, we, we're pretty good now at creating machine learning models that can recognize patterns, even really complex patterns. But, you know, I've seen certain papers that claim like, oh, maybe convolutional convnets you know, only really look at textures and not really the shapes. Right. So, you know, it, that's a little bit easier of a pattern to recognize. Um, so where I'm going with this is more like, how do we make models that don't just see patterns in data, but really reason about that data to come to new conclusions?
0: Or have contextual information yeah. that a human picks up.
1: Exactly. Um, and that that goes kind of back to the multimodal stuff. Like how can not, you know, we can't just use text. We also have to use images, video, um, you know, so maybe, you know, embodied kind of uh, robotics kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. As much information as we can throw in there that an AI can make those logical connections.
0: Um, what about empathy?
1: Empathy. That's interesting. It's a that very human kind of uh, concept. But
0: I think that's one thing that machine learning is going to be lacking if they're going to try to surpass human intelligence or will definitely be necessary if we want to let it run unobstructed throughout our society is that it needs to possess empathy like a human. Mm
1: -hmm. If you don't
0: want something with an IQ of a thousand running around.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I still think we're pretty far from that point, personally. I, there's a lot of very smart people who can probably talk much more in depth on this topic. But from what I've picked up on, um, there's there's a lot of things we can do to, you know, as AI gets smarter, right? There's a lot of things we can do to make it align with our goals. Mm-hmm. You know, and, th- and there's a kind of the classic idea of like, oh, uh, you know, we have a robot that like, I tell the robot make a paperclip, right? And then it turns the whole world into paperclips if it's, you know, super intelligent. So there's, I think one of the big problems is aligning, basically like being able to write down what our uh, objectives are as humans, right? Um, And maybe that's not something we can do. Maybe we can't tell a robot, you know, do, you know, achieve this goal, but, you know, don't hurt humans or don't do, like, there may be a point where the robot gets around that or the AI gets around that. So, may I, I've heard of uh, concepts of you know trying um, for to make AI figure out what is important to humans, and maybe that is empathy, right? Can you can a, can an AI analyze human behavior and try to determine you know the moral kind of uh, laws and, and kind of the objectives that a human might have, and then try to take those into account when achieving you know some something that we want the AI to do, right? So it, there's, there's room for improvement there.
0: It makes me kind of think of micro-expression reading. It's really easy to do with a computer and computer vision.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, but a lot of humans miss micro-expressions on other humans. But usually we, like, try to cover it up like disgust or something. If someone says something inappropriate and we're like, oh, yes, everything is fine. <laughs> and we hide the disgust, but a computer would see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of is an interesting view into the soul that a computer gets that most humans miss. So.
1: Yeah, uh, humans angles. are very flawed in many ways. Right? <laughs> like uh, maybe AI can actually help us communicate with each other even more effectively, like read us even more effectively than another human could.
0: One idea um, with along the lines of like Neuralink, and there's actually quite a few versions of Neuralink out right now in the space doing a lot of research, and they are thinking about being able to merge two human brains. So if you will, you could merge your brain with your girlfriend <laughs> and you could hear all her thoughts unfiltered. Would is that something that you you know, that's a human-machine interface, but like yeah. also you're interfacing with another human. What if what happens when we combine two human brains?
1: Yeah, I don't I mean, that is the way I, I don't really know what would happen, but it that is the way that we've kind of been progressing in a way, right? I think I don't know if this is the exact way that Elon thinks about it, but the way I have interpreted it is that you know as as the technology has developed we've increased the bandwidth of information flow from our brains to a computer right maybe we started with punch cards and that's was too slow so we you know we have keyboards that was too slow so now we have like voice and like uh, smartphones in our pockets and we can like access it as quickly and efficiently and as as high bandwidth as possible we can put as much information into a computer right and and with each other as well i guess with the internet and whatnot so it seems like a natural evolution Right, I don't. I, I. But I think we'll have to have a slow progression there, because I don't think society could handle just like immediate, you know, brain to brain communication.
0: I mean, like everyone has thoughts that they think that they don't want their significant other to <laughs> know. Probably, yeah. so that would be my biggest fear. Is like, you know, oh, this dinner's really gross. Oh, it's great, honey. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. You know, <laughs> um, those things in that kind of space, and yeah. That, the normal level of privacy that we're used to at least inside of our own head
1: but think about privacy maybe you know like let's say 50 years ago right before the internet i mean i i can't speak too well on, on how it was back then but my understanding is like people compared to now people would be very private right like now you can know immediately exactly where all your friends are located right like what they're doing what what food they've eaten right (laughs) like
0: look at here's a picture (laughs) exactly
1: so that's kind of normal now Mm -hmm. so maybe it does seem a bit strange to us like oh it'd be so you know there's no privacy there right but i don't know maybe that's just how human civilization is developing like privacy is becoming less and less or maybe different in some way right
0: I mean, I would argue that even though we've kind of reduced the amount of privacy and I can see what you had for dinner, we've decreased the amount of community involvement. Mm. So in the 19, I don't know, whatever's, there was a lot more sense of community. You knew your neighbor's names and stuff like that. I mean, I've lived in my home for a couple of years and I've said hi to my neighbors a handful of times and tried to invite them over (laughs) for barbecue and stuff and be community. Uh, But I would say like the... The decrease in privacy has like gone the opposite way. As far as like we yeah. don't have a sense of community as much as we did previously,
1: or, or at least like local communities. Yes, right. Because globally, I would say we're more connected Correct. globally than ever, right?
0: And mm-hmm. probably with people that share more similar ideas. Yeah. Because you can be selective and say you have the exact same, you know, ideas that I have, and I would like to communicate with you so we can come up with more crazy ideas. Yeah. I guess.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, of course, social media, there's a lot of stuff that we need to improve there. Um, but I don't know, I'm optimistic. But I'm kind of, I guess, a technologist where I could say, you know, maybe it's all that all that we need is a revolutionary new tech idea that helps not only create global communities, but local communities. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's people who have attempted kind of like more local social media, right? Like, I can't, that must be something, right?
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, there's this girl that does this podcast that interviews local Boise techies. Yeah. Yeah. You there might, we go. You might know about her. <laughs> her name is Sarah in tech. <laughs> she also runs a meetup for data scientists in Boise.
1: <laughs> there we go.
0: <laughs> trying to Perfect. create community, if you will. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a global audience. So I, it's kind of strange. Huh?
0: <laughs> it is. We're trying to bring the data science meetup, especially and make it global. We're going to stream live for the first time this, like in two or three weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's, Oh, it's kind of nerve-wracking <laughs> oh wow stream live I haven't told the people presenting their streaming live yet I'm <laughs> sure they'll they'll be excited right <laughs> yeah,
1: Why not bigger audience <laughs> yeah only three cameras running on that. oh so. no yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: I just got to prototype out like the sound system and everything with a bunch of friends so
1: it was, Oh, that's it was awesome fun.
0: All right so back to you What's your favorite programming language?
1: Uh, well, that would have to be Python. I mean, that's uh. what the world runs on nowadays. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and what's your favorite package? Is it the one that you're working on?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, QKeras definitely is up there. I'm actively developing it, right? So mm-hmm. I hope it's good. <laughs> um, and then other ones, of course, uh, NumPy, TensorFlow, a new one that Google just came out with, uh, JAX. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm still learning it, uh, but it has a lot of potential. It's like NumPy, but it has a lot of, like, really cool machine learning uh, features baked into it.
0: Sounds like I'm going to have to check out Jax pretty soon.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I definitely recommend giving it a look.
0: Do you have a preference for a technology stack? Um, Are you just, like, GPC all the way, man?
1: So that's interesting, because at Google, we don't use GPC. It's like we have our own internal system that's Mm -hmm. different, right? I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that like Google is like 10 years ahead of what's publicly available externally. We're 10 years ahead in internal tools, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, they, of course, they're very experimental. So, I mean, in terms of stack, it's basically what Google is making right now. right?
0: And then actually commercializing it. And
1: Ex- like exactly. It. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I think some of the stuff they've released is a, a tool called Vizier um, the, that automatically searches hyperparameters of models and mm-hmm. does a kind of, a I think it's like a Bayesian search of the best hyperparameters and whatnot. And I've been learning a lot about that. It seems like a really useful tool. I, I have it in my in my stack when I'm working right now, yeah.
0: Fits along with being a Bayesian. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm not a frequentist or a Bayesian. I think both can be used. So sure. i just giving you a hard time. <laughs> so what is one of your biggest joys in life right now?
1: Uh, Ah, I think outside of tech, I've been uh, mountain biking. Actually, I'm going mountain biking right after this interview. Uh, So it's it's has brought a lot of joy in terms of like, you know, in during quarantine, I'm like, you know, stuck on my computer all day in my apartment all day. So being able to find something that I've really enjoyed that is so completely different mm-hmm. has really brought me a lot of happiness
0: do you go all the way up to bogus or
1: i haven't biked at bogus yet i've done a lot of like foothill stuff uh you know I, i'm still a, a novice of course but i'm I'm getting better and better it's uh it's fun yeah
0: i was watching people getting air this weekend i was not biking whatsoever but i was watching people getting air while biking and i was like wow and they're just like turned down <laughs> the hill i'm like
1: all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've tried. I, I, I got a, a few scratches the other day, but you know that's part of the fun. I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, what is one of your fears or stressors currently? Uh,
1: fears or stressors. Um, next. I guess just uh, the unknown of what's happening next. Mm-hmm. Um, of of I mean, more specifically with the whole pandemic, mm-hmm. things have changed around so much, right? And then like, oh, what will it be like going to California? You know, what will it be like working in person with the people I've been working with for a year? Right. Like, so it's it is a bit of a kind of gives me a little bit of anxiety. But at the same time, I'm super excited about it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, overall, I guess it's a positive.
0: I have to say, as someone who worked remote and then actually started going into the office and seeing these people in real life, uh, one thing that I got from Zoom was that I expected them all to be a lot shorter than they actually are, or maybe it's just <laughs> the fact that I'm short. But I'm like, "Oh, hi guys, how's yeah. how's it going up there?" And like on Zoom, it they're you know nice and leveled. But other yeah. than that, it hasn't been too jarring. And California, I think, opened up two or three days ago.
1: Yeah, I think they're they've opened up recently. Mm-hmm.
0: And so everyone's really excited. There was like a big announcement. The governor was at like Disney, there was confetti, oh, yeah. everyone was very happy. So
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, I wonder how my social skills have changed just from being on video calls all day, you know? <laughs> like Have huh.
0: you experienced Zoom fatigue at all or do you I think mean, you have?
1: I actually kind of have been wanting to have more social interaction with my coworkers and also other people. So there are days where it's like, okay, too much, but many days it's like I want more. Like I want to socialize more, even if it is on on Zoom or video call, right? So, I mean, in some ways, just not long-term fatigue yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear. So what is a favorite problem that you've solved recently that you can share, or can you not
1: Um, share? Let me think. Mm, I guess I can share maybe a a, a hobby problem that I've been looking at. Um, I I don't know if I consider it necessarily solved, but I've been really interested in cellular automata Um, and this is the concept of like, imagine you have a grid, right? And you have uh, basically cells are each point in this grid Mm -hmm. and they have very simple rules that, um, you apply to every single one of these cells. And from these simple rules, you get very complex behavior. Mm -hmm. So imagine like Conway's game of life, right? I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but Conway's game of life, you have, I think it's like three or four rules. And if you apply them, then you get something that almost looks lifelike. So I've been fascinated by this. And, um, I guess my question has been, oh, I wonder if I could make like a little game out of this or some, some sort of experience where I could show this to someone new where it really get, gets them the feeling of like, wow, complexity, so much complexity can be achieved by these simple rules in a mm-hmm. kind of a fun way. So um, I've been working on that recently and I found a tool, a shader toy, which allows you to write uh, GPU shaders that run on the web browser mm-hmm. really quickly. So it's a very efficient program. Um, and I've been, uh, I recently found that out and I've been trying to develop some, some little tool to like experience them in a very kind of a like hardware efficient way, right? Something that can run at speed, basically. Mm
0: -hmm. That sounds really interesting and complex.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's an interesting idea. And I, I, I don't yet have all the tech skills that I need to really solve it, but Mm. I'm, I'm getting closer. I think I'll have something soon. Yeah.
0: Well, let us know when you uh, have something to release and we'll <laughs> definitely all want to take a look.
1: Sure, sure.
0: Do you have any closing thoughts? Um,
1: I guess closing thoughts is I'm, I think it's always important to, to how do I say this? It's learning new information is mm-hmm. crucial mm-hmm. in in you know for hobbies for being competitive in a job market for everything and so i think i would encourage everyone to just always be open to learning new things and like always having that learning mindset when it comes to finding the truth right um or you know when it comes to finding new packages on python to try (laughs) out right always be open to changing your mind yeah
0: that's some very good words of wisdom (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any socials that you would like to plug?
1: Um, I'll just say, yeah, you can just see my website, www.daniellemoro.com, just first and last name.com.
0: Very cool. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and yeah. sharing all your knowledge.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for organizing this. I think it's a great value to the community.
0: Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening.